Thank you, Clemens. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that we've been able to witness so far uh, this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being able to uh, sing your praise, to witness uh, a, a beautiful testimony um, um, uh, in, the, uh, in the waters of baptism, Lord, uh, beauty coming from, uh, from ashes, uh, from uh, something uh, very dark um, to bringing uh, something that's gloriously bright. And Lord, we give you thanks and praise that that's the kind of God that you are. Lord, I thank you that those who dwell in deep darkness and in gloom, that on them a light has shone. And God, we thank you for this season. We thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the opportunity to stop and to pause and to behold him uh, who is described here in this text as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And we pray, Lord, that we would indeed behold him and that as we see him, uh, we would be transformed um, by uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we pray that you would do this in the power of your Spirit and in the name of your Son. If you agree, say amen. Amen. Well, if you're visiting uh, with us, my name is Ted. It's my privilege to serve as one of the the pastors here. Uh, My real name, by the way, is actually Edward. Uh, My full name is Edward Alexander Duncan. Uh, Edward, I'm named after the grandfather on my mother's side, Alan Edward uh, Barlow. The name Edward means uh, wealthy. And uh, Alexander, my middle name, I'm named after the uh, grandfather on my father's side, John Alexander Duncan. And uh, Alexander means strong defender. Now, you know what kind of profession I'm in, and we're not that kind of church, so I'm not that wealthy. (laughs) And if you were to like sort of cast me in a movie, like I probably wouldn't be like the warrior defender guy, but my name means a wealthy defender nonetheless. And those were the names that my parents chose for me. They were intentional. Uh, when I was born, to give me those, those names. There's meaning and significance to those names. I just met a little baby Isla who's having her first uh, worship service uh, here today and uh, got to congratulate Jason and Rowan. And I, 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 I met Isla, I heard her name, and uh, Jason and Rowan chose to give that name. I don't know if parents uh, still uh, do this, but when our kids were born, we have four boys, and at, at, as, as each uh, child was born, Lindsay would work on a little birth announcement, just a, uh, a little postcard with a picture of our baby, and then the, the day he was born, and his name, and maybe a verse connected uh, to to the name, and I remember at at different times in our life, like sometimes the birth announcement would come out super quick, you know, (laughs) within a a few weeks of the child being born, we're already mailing out the birth announcement to our friends and families. At other times, when other kids were born, there were other things happening, and maybe it was a couple of months, maybe it was six months before we announced that our child was born, just depending on what was happening. And sometimes birth announcements come out, you know, right on time. Sometimes birth announcements come out a little bit late, uh, for Jesus, his birth announcement came really, really early, like 700 years early, right here in Isaiah chapter 9. And 
Uh, there's, there's seven names that Jesus is given at his advent, at, at Christmas time. There's, there's seven different names. And on this Sunday and then on Christmas Eve, we're going to be looking at all seven of the names. And there's sort of seven sort of Christmas names that are given uh, to Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we have four of them all clustered Together, And what we're going to see as we study these names today is that the names of Jesus reveal the needs of his people. His, the names that are given to him show the needs that, that that's why he was given. He was given to us because of these, these, these needs that we have as his people. So the context of Isaiah uh, chapter 9 uh, really, this section in Isaiah begins in chapter 7, and Isaiah has been having this, 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 these words for a king in Judah named Ahaz. Ahaz was a really bad king, and he made some terrible decisions, and he was under a lot of pressure. Um, the, the kingdom of Israel had already divided into two, so he had Judah in the south, that's who Ahaz was king over. But then you had Israel or Samaria to the north, and they had teamed up in an alliance with the Syrians, and they were threatening to, to invade Judah. Now Ahaz thought, rather than turning towards the Lord, Ahaz thought, the only way for me to beat this, this alliance is to, is to create his own alliance with the superpower of the world at the time, the Assyrians, not to be confused with the Syrians, the Assyrians. And Isaiah kept telling him, this is going to backfire, that you can't trust Assyria. If you lean on them, they're actually going to turn on you and end up invading you. And so back in chapter 7, Isaiah said, you know, this familiar phrase, a virgin will conceive and be with child. You know, that's another Christmas prophecy. But for Ahaz and Isaiah at the time, all Isaiah was doing was just laying out a timeline. He said, before it would take, if a baby were to be born, before that baby gets old, all of your enemies, the Israel army, the Syrian army, and even this Assyrian army that you're depending on, they're all going to be destroyed. And Isaiah was counseling him, counseling Ahaz, no, just wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. But Ahaz wouldn't listen. And so Ahaz ended up relying on Assyria, and the results were disastrous. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 8. It ends in gloom and in darkness. And then when we come to chapter 9, it says, out of this, uh, the people who were in darkness, they've seen a great light. Verse 3 says that they're going to be filled with joy. Verse 4 says that the, the yoke and the staff and the rod, the oppression that they're going to experience from the Assyrians, the people who they thought would save them, ended up enslaving them. But it says that that, that yoke and that staff and that rod is going to be broken. Verse 4 uh, says, broken like in the day of Midian. Remember the story of Gideon and he had thousands of soldiers and God kept whittling the army down to 300? Isaiah is saying there's going to be, a, there's going to be an unexpected and unlikely victory like the days of Midian. And not only that, look at verse 5. All of the warriors' boots and all of their gear, it's all going to be thrown into the fire. This war is going to be the war to end all wars. And here's why in verse 6, for to us a child is born, 
And for us, a son is given. Just like in the days of Gideon, God was going to bring a victory that was unexpected and unlikely. Not from a tiny little army, but from a tiny little baby. That this child that is to be born is going to bring this incredible victory. Now, the, the, the heartbreaking thing about Ahaz is that Ahaz was so committed to the other religions at his time that on at least one occasion, and probably on multiple occasions, Ahaz had actually killed his own children to appease the gods to try to bring about his own victory. We think about gods in our own culture and how children are, young children, unborn children, are victims of the gods in our own culture. Ahaz did the same thing. The gods of the world, the false religions of the world, take your children. But the true God gives his child. It says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's strange language. It would have been strange even, uh, take a look at here at this slide, it would have been strange even for Isaiah to write this. A child is born, that makes sense, but what does it mean for a son to be given? Well, sort of, it's clear to us now that the child being born, that speaks to Jesus' humanity, but the son being given, that speaks to his divinity, that God the Father has always had a son in eternity and that he gave his son. As John 3.16 makes so clear, it's the same language. A son is given in Isaiah 9, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And as he gave his son, it says in in verse 6 that the government shall be upon his shoulder. That shoulder in verse 4 that had the yoke of slavery Now on the shoulders of Jesus will be the government. And he's given these four names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And these names reveal our needs. Let's take a look at the first name. Uh, Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor because we need wisdom. He's called Wonderful Counselor because we need wisdom. If you're taking notes today, you can jot that down. Wonderful there. Think about signs and wonders. Wonderful means miraculous. It means supernatural. It means divine. It means spiritual. It means wisdom on a whole other level. We live in a world that is more educated and more intelligent then we know what to do with. We live in a world that has access to all of this information, all of this knowledge, but we live in a world that doesn't know how to use it. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is skilled living. This, this far side, uh, a, a comic really sums it up, right? The school for the gifted, all of this intelligence, all of this wisdom, just pull the door. This is the kind of world in which we live in. And the Bible tells us, how did we end up like this? Why is it that every time we try to come up with a solution to a problem, we end up creating more and more problems? Whether we try to solve solutions in the environment, or solutions in culture, or solutions in finances, 
The, the, the solutions end up creating more problems. How many government programs to try to stabilize the economy have only resulted in a less stable economy? How many times has a military conflict to try to, to, to deal with something quickly ends up going long, 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 year after year after year? How many cultural programs or, 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 or laws to try to create justice in one area create injustice in another? We have all the intelligence and all of the knowledge, yet we lack wisdom. And the book of Romans tells us how we ended up this way. Romans 1, verse 21 and 22 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming to be wise, they became fools fools. Watching the news today, and again, I don't claim to be a particularly wise person. I know I need wisdom as well. But watching the news today, I just marvel at intelligent, well-educated people saying utterly foolish things. Claiming to be wise, but, but just become because we've, we've cut God out of the equation. To, to fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when we cut God out of our life and out of our culture, it just leads to utter foolishness. But Jesus has come as the wonderful counselor, the source of all wisdom. We're told about him in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, don't boast in your education or your degrees or your intelligence, boast in the Lord. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 says, Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Loved ones, Jesus is the wonderful counselor because we all need wisdom. Think about what it says in James chapter 3 of verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. True wisdom is sincere, it's not hypocritical. True wisdom is full of good fruits, not evil deeds. True wisdom is full of mercy, not full of revenge and, and punishing your enemies. It's open to reason, it's willing to be convinced if someone gives a, a decent argument, it's gentle, it's not harsh, it doesn't name call, it's not rude, it's peaceable and pure. This is the wisdom that our world needs, and this is the wisdom that is given to us at Christmas in this child, the baby Jesus. He's the wonderful counselor because we need wisdom. Think about Jesus' teaching, think about the wisdom that he gave us. He taught us lessons like humility comes before honor. That if we humble ourselves, then that sets the stage for God to exalt us. But if we try to exalt ourselves, we will only end up being humbled and humiliated. That is good advice. That is wisdom. That spares us from all kinds of embarrassment and problems in our life. Humility before others. To put others before yourself. To put other, to, rather than seeking your own interest, to look into the interests of others, to have the position of a servant. 
That's the wisdom of Jesus, that sacrifice leads to blessing, that you won't see anything of value in your life unless you are willing to pay the price, that that blessing does not come through ease, does not come from taking the easy way out, it comes through sacrifice. This is all the wisdom of Jesus, that death, in fact, leads to life. That, that we, we live an abundant life when we allow the Lord Jesus to put things to death that need to be put to death. And that forgiveness is greater than revenge. That forgiveness is greater than that to, to, to be able to, rather than trying to pay people back for what they have done to us, to be able to recognize that we have been forgiven. Freely we've received forgiveness, so freely we should be able to give it. This is the kind of wisdom that Jesus gives us. So he's wonderful counselor because we need wisdom. Secondly, he is mighty God because we need strength. He's mighty God because we need strength. Now Isaiah is writing with some beautiful artistry in the Hebrew. It doesn't really come through in English. We, we have We have spiritual terms like wonderful and then God actually being at the front end in in the Hebrew. So that mighty God is actually God who is mighty. The Hebrew there is El Gabor, the, the warrior God, the God of war. Now remember, the backdrop to this story is Gideon's battle against the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he called him Gabor. He called him a mighty warrior. Look at this on the screen. So Isaiah 9, 6 says, mighty God. Judges 6, 12, when the angel of the Lord came to to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Because God is a God who is a warrior, then Gideon had the power to be a warrior as well. Now, here's the, thing about, here's the thing about Gideon. When the angel came to him, do you remember what Gideon was doing? He was threshing wheat in a wine press. A wine press was something that was down under the ground. It was like a big ditch. Threshing wheat can only happen when you have wind. You would normally thresh wheat on top of a hill. You'd throw the wheat up in the air with a pitchfork and the the wind would blow away the chaff and the wheat would remain down. Now, Gideon was doing an exercise in futility. There was no wind under the ground where he was threshing wheat. Gideon had found a way, like so many of us, he had found a way to function amidst dysfunction. He had admitted defeat. Because what had happened is, whenever the Israelites went up to the top of the hill to thresh their wheat, guess who came? The Midianites, the oppressors came, and they came and stole all of the wheat. And so Gideon just said, I'm tired of losing all the time. And I know this isn't really working, but I'm not, I'm just not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be a loser anymore. But he's still a loser because he, he can't thresh wheat. And some of us, we have, th- we have broken relationships in our lives, or our finances are all upside down, or there's, there's something going on, and we've just admitted defeat. We've just gone, and we're, oh, I'm just threshing wheat. It's, it's not working. You think that you're avoiding losing. You're still losing. And so, listen, we don't just find a way to survive or to function within dysfunction. That's not what God has called us to. 
God is El Gabor. He is mighty God. He is a warrior God. And he will fight for us. But we can't hide in the pit. We have to stand up and to trust in him. And we have a far worse enemy than the Midianites. We have sin and death and shame. But our God is a mighty God. And the, the little baby is called mighty, this little baby is called a mighty warrior, El Gabor. And Jesus demonstrated that power, casting out demons, feeding thousands of people, healing the sick, walking on water, raising the dead. But the amazing thing about Jesus is he demonstrated this power in surprising ways, didn't he? I mean, all he had to do to demonstrate his power, it says right here, all he had to do was be born. He showed his power by being born as a baby. And most clearly, he showed his power by dying on a cross. You see, Jesus had this amazing way of demonstrating his power through what the world saw as weakness. And this is the way that, that God has set it up, that weakness wins in the rules that God has set up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25 says, the foolishness of God is wiser than, the, than, than, than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God wins through weakness. So what is something that is, that is in your life right now, and you are trying to get by on your own strength? And you're threshing wheat in the middle of, a, middle of a pit, in the middle of a wine press. What, are you, what, what relationship in your life, or what struggle, or what challenge, what pattern of thinking, what sinful addiction are you trying to manage in your own strength? And what God is calling you to do is to walk in the way of weakness, is to admit that you cannot do it. And to trust that God is the El Gabor, that God is the mighty God, that Jesus is the one who possesses the power. And he wants to display his power, not just through his weakness, he wants to display that power through your weakness. Like the Apostle Paul recognized in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's like, you're feeling weak? Perfect. We're like, I'm feeling weak. This is the worst. I got to change this. God's like, no, no, just stay just like that. Just stay just like that. Because this is perfect. This is the perfect setting for me to display my power. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus is called mighty God because we need strength. It's not up to our own energy. It's not up to our own strength. It's up to his strength. The next name is Everlasting Father. Jesus is called Everlasting Father because we need leadership, because we need leadership. Now, some people uh, want to read this verse or look at this name and think, well, this is Jesus, the Son of God, and he's being called Everlasting Father. There must be some Trinitarian connection here that Jesus is the, well, Jesus isn't the Father. Jesus is one with the Father, 
And whoever has seen the Father has seen Jesus. That's John 10, 30 and John 14, 9. But just because the, the, the child is called everlasting father doesn't mean that Jesus is the father. Remember, Jesus is God, the father is God, the spirit is God, but Jesus is not the father and Jesus is not the spirit and the spirit is not the father and the spirit is not Jesus and the father is not the spirit and the father is not Jesus. There is one God in three persons. And so in the same way that the Holy Spirit at other times is called counselor, Jesus is called the wonderful counselor. It doesn't mean that Jesus is, is the same as the Spirit. No, the Son and the Spirit are distinct, and the Father is, is distinct. What Isaiah is getting at here is he's using a metaphor for political leadership. A few chapters later, in Isaiah chapter 22, God is talking to a Shebna who was a bureaucrat in the, in the Judah government. He was a, a secretary, he was an administrator, he was in charge of, of, of uh, he had government responsibility, and Shebna was going to be replaced by this guy, Eliakim, because God puts rulers and authorities in place. He lifts some up and he takes some out. And in Isaiah 22, he says, in that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and notice what it says, it says, he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. He's going to act like, his, in the way that he leads, he's going to be like a father. You see, Jesus is not just a warrior who comes and wins some sort of victory and then says, okay, go have fun with that. I, I earned your freedom. Now you're on your own. No, he's El Gabor, but he's also the everlasting father. He is going to protect us and provide for us. He is going to lead us and direct us. Earlier in, in, in verse 6, it says that the government will be on his shoulder. Later in verse 7, it says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The idea here is that this child who is going to come is going to rule and reign. And there, there is a day where he will come here on this earth and, and reign from the throne of David. But even now he is reigning. Even now he is ruling. Are we letting him rule us? Are we letting him father us? A father in a home or a ruler in a nation is a source of stability and security. And that's what Jesus is for us. He's our, our sense of stability. When everything else is out of control, we know that he is in control. And he's our source of security. He will protect us and will provide for us. So right now, loved ones, are you trusting that God has you? Are, are, are you trusting that he is fathering you right now, leading you, protecting you, providing for you, providing stability and security for you? Because if you aren't, your life is going to be characterized by anxiety, and by worry. And that leads us to the fourth and final name. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace because we need peace. We, we live in such an anxious age. 
700 BC, when Isaiah was writing this, this was an anxious time too. Ahaz had a, a, a lot of things that he was trying to wrestle with. He had uh, invading armies mounting to the north. He had this Assyrian empire. He, he was trying to find his way. It was a complicated and confusing time. He was anxious. And the main reason why he was anxious is that he was trying to lead. And he was trying to rely on his own wisdom and rely on his own strength or on the strength of Assyria rather than on the strength of God. You see, we live in such an anxious age because as you look at the, all of the things that Jesus gives to us, leadership, strength, and wisdom, one of the reasons why we live in such an anxious age is because we're told time and time again that leadership, strength, and wisdom doesn't come from God. It comes from ourself. That we're not supposed to listen to anyone else, right? How, how many times do we hear it said on social media or in a, a message in a movie or we, we, we hear teachers say it all of the time? Don't, don't, don't conform or don't go along with what someone else says or, or, or what the Bible says or what authority says. You just be you. Do your own thing. And if everyone does their own thing, isn't that just everyone doing what everyone says? <laughs> if you're telling me that I'm supposed to do my own thing, aren't I just doing what you're telling me to do? We're continually told that we need to be our own leaders and that, and that we're supposed to decide and make decisions. We're, we're also told that we're supposed to be the source of our own strength. We're told time and time again, whatever you put your mind to it, you can do. I'm sorry, you can't. You cannot do whatever you set your mind to. Yes, set your mind to, set reasonable goals and work hard and trust the Lord, but you cannot do whatever you set your mind to. That is one of the reasons why we are such an anxious age is because we feel like we're the only ones that are failing because everyone else is saying, just set your mind to it and you can do whatever you want to do. I can't play middle linebacker for the Buffalo Bills. It doesn't matter how much I set my mind to it. It's not going to happen. But people feel anxious because they're continually told that they have the strength inside of them and then they look inside of them and what do we see? All we see is weakness. And then we're continually told that wisdom is somehow inside of us. That we just need to look into our heart and follow our own heart. And, and then we will know what to do. We got to be true to ourselves. True to what self? Listen, li, li, so listen to my heart. My heart says all kinds of different things all the time. My desires are continually contradictory. They're confused. They're within conflict within one another. This morning, I had a strong desire to wake up and read my Bible and prepare for this worship service. I also had a strong desire just to stay in bed. I got to listen to my heart. I, gotta, I just got to be true. Which me? Which heart? The one who says stay in bed or the one who says get up early and read my Bible? Which one? This is why we live in such an anxious age, because listen, we need wisdom. We don't have it, but we're told that we do. And then we're, we're, 
We need strength. We don't have it, but we're told that we do. And we need leadership because we don't have it, but we're told that we do. And so we feel we all have imposter syndrome. We feel like we're supposed to have it all together. And because the messaging of the world is saying that we, that we have it all. Where the whole point of Christmas is the gift. It's about receiving It's about receiving wisdom. It's about receiving strength. It's about receiving leadership. And when we receive, then we will have peace. If we're looking within, it's only going to lead to increasing anxiety. Peace here is not just the absence of military conflict. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It's this all-encompassing, holistic, top to bottom, everything being in a right relationship with God and with other human beings and with creation. He is the prince of peace. This is what the angels announced in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We don't get peace on earth until we give glory to God. We don't get wisdom until we receive the wonderful counselor. We don't get strength until we admit that we're weak and call upon the mighty God. We don't get leadership until we recognize that we need an everlasting Father. Peace only comes when we give glory to God. Peace only comes when we let him be prince. We're trying to operate like we're little princes and princesses and kings and queens that we're running the show. We're not running the show. We got to recognize that he and he alone is prince. And again, I don't know how, how Isaiah felt about what he was writing or how he was processing it, but he, might, he must have made a connection that the son in Isaiah chapter 9 is also the servant in Isaiah 53. Because in Isaiah 53, we're told this, we're told But he was pierced for our transgressions. This is a prediction about the cross, 700 years in advance. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us, there's the word, peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah chapter 9 is a birth announcement. Isaiah 53 is an obituary. It's announcing and predicting the death of this child. That that the prince of peace was going to bring peace by being chastised, by being punished so that we could have peace. Being crushed so that we could be forgiven for our iniquities. And pierced on the cross so that we could have forgiveness for our transgressions. So that we could have peace. Romans 5.1 says that because of what Christ Jesus accomplished on the cross, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. 
Now, I want to be really clear that peace is not just a feeling. Peace is, is, is not just a way that we happen to feel at any given moment. You know, there's, there's verses like Philippians chapter 4 that in light of the, pe- the Prince of Peace who has come, we can cling to verses like this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God guards our hearts and our minds. Sometimes we think that having peace means that we feel fine about everything all the time. That's not how the peace of God works. Everything worth doing on planet Earth, everything worth doing requires effort and hard work. Following God and doing the right thing often requires overcoming all kinds of worry and anxiety. But the peace of God helps us. For Julie to, to, to stand up today and to stand in this tank and to give the kind of testimony that she had. I was sitting right, by, right, right behind her as she's getting ready. She did not visit, she, she wasn't feeling peace in the moment as she's thinking about, I've got to get out, I've got to share these things. She's anxious the whole way. She didn't wait till she felt this sense of peace. And then when, if she waited for the sense of peace, she probably never would have done it. Doing the right thing, obeying Christ, doesn't mean that we feel at peace, but we trust that he is the prince of peace. We don't wait for a feeling, but we step out in faith. You might be sitting at the, 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 the Christmas Eve dinner table or the Christmas Day dinner table with unsaved family members and there's an opportunity to witness. And listen, if you wait, till, if you wait for the feeling of peace where you don't feel nervous about sharing the gospel... You just wait until next year, I guess. Don't wait for the feeling. Just trust that Jesus is Prince. Because you're never going to feel, let's, let's go back to the outline, you're never going to feel like, 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 like you know what to do, but Jesus is your leader. You're never, you're never, sorry, that's the wrong word. Can we, this is freedom. It should say strength. I edited the slides late last night. You're never going to feel strong enough, but God is our mighty God. You're never going to feel like you have the right answers or that you have the wisdom, but God will give you the wisdom. This is, this is the child that was given to us. And so have you received this gift? Have you received the wonderful counselor? Have you received his wisdom? Have you received the mighty God? And are you relying on his strength? Have you received the everlasting father? And are you allowing him and trusting him to be your sense of stability and security? And have you received the prince of peace? Let's bow our heads and and pray together.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for these names that he is given as his birth is announced. We thank you that Jesus Christ is indeed our source of wisdom and that he is our source of strength and that he is our source of leadership and our our source of peace. And Lord, I, I pray that at this Christmas season, that we would be able to step out and to trust you, to trust that you will give us the wisdom that we need and the strength that we need and the leadership that we need and the peace that we need. Lord, none of these things come from within. They all come from the gift that you have given, the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we give gifts to one another and run around shopping for uh, one another in this busy season, Lord, that we would receive the gift that you have given to us. Lord, it's just what we needed. And so, Father, we pray that you would draw us very, very near to you this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.